Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Hannah Pittard is the author of We Are Too Many, a memoir kind of. Hannah is the author of four novels, and her books have been recommended by the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, O, the Oprah Magazine, Time, The Guardian, and many others. She is the winner of the Amanda Davis Highwire Fiction Award, a McDowell Colony Fellow, and a graduate of Deerfield Academy, the University of Chicago, and the University of Virginia. She also spent some time at St. John's College in Annapolis. She is a professor of English at the University of Kentucky and lives in Lexington with her boyfriend and stepdaughter. This episode was recorded live at the Miami Book Fair. We were up in a little room on top of the author's lounge, and 
Hannah and I did a wonderful podcast sitting face-to-face, which was so lovely, and I truly enjoyed meeting her. So thank you to the Miami Book Fair. Thank you to Moleskin, who is our sponsor, and thank you to Hannah. We are thrilled that Moleskin is partnering with us again on another one of our Zivi Books titles. Hell, if we don't change our ways, you can get 15% off paper and bags with free personalization with the purchase of a notebook. The code is ZIBBY, all caps, Z-I-B-B-Y. The notebooks, we're doing some custom notebooks for some of our books, which are absolutely gorgeous. You should definitely get a new Moleskin journal. You can personalize them for your kids or your spouse, give them as gifts, and just go check them out. Check out their website, moleskin.com. And again, you can get 15% off everything paper-related and bags and get some free personalization while you're at it. Again, that's code ZIBBY, moleskin.com. Thank you to Moleskin. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books in this <laughs> interesting recording situation. We're at the Miami Book Fair, and they have coordinated this meeting, which is so wonderful to be in person. So thank you so much. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. We are in what is a beautiful office. If you're a professor, which I am, there's a patio and a view. True. Yeah. I mean, glass half full. Yeah. What else could we possibly need? We have some books here. <laughs> we have a whiteboard. We can We're start not going making through plans. anything. We're not opening anyone's drawers. We won't meddle. <laughs> okay. We are too many. Tell listeners about your book, please. Yeah. So I wrote a memoir, and I'm not by trade a nonfiction writer or a memoirist. I'm a novelist. And during the time of COVID, and especially those first couple months alone when I think we were all readjusting to isolation. I tried to work on a new book and I tried to work on fiction and it was almost as though I'd lost my ability because it felt very much like I was living in a fiction and I started reading a lot of nonfiction. I started reading things that were grounding me to reality and After that wore off, it was just me and my brain. And what I realized was a lot of the silence that I was having in my brain and a lot of that isolation time allowed me to start thinking about events from my past and specifically from my divorce. And there were certain conversations that I could not get out of my head. And I think the busyness of life after divorce, of reconstructing a life and getting back to teaching, it allowed certain unfinished business to stay unfinished for a while so that when there was suddenly this calm and void, those conversations came back and I wanted them gone. (laughs) And and what I did is what I naturally do. I wrote them down. I started writing them down and it wasn't necessarily immediately thinking that it would be a book. I think at first those conversations were just for me. I thought I could expunge them. And then the more I wrote, the more I thought, these are kind of interesting conversations. Some of them are sexy. Some of them are (laughs) crazy. Uh, Some of them I think people could learn from. And I shared some very early drafts with my agent and she said, I'm going to paraphrase here, but she said, essentially, I don't know why I want to keep reading, but I want to keep reading. It's a hot mess and I'm interested. Keep going. And, And I did. 
Amazing. <laughs> so the format itself is really interesting for a memoir and to get us into the character's lives. So you have a nice introduction where you explain and you explain what happened after you wrote about people, real people, which of course is an issue when you're writing mm-hmm. fiction and memoir, but when fiction becomes very close or people recognize themselves, although they tend to even when it's not even them, but that's okay. You get into some hot water. Anyway, so you start talking about that. And then all of these scenes, both real and imagined, to sort of piece together what happened. So why dialogue? Like you could have gone back and turned it into prose, right? but you kept it as a screenplay almost, right? All of the different sections, short sections of, of, so why? How did you decide to keep it like that? So the part one, it's almost entirely dialogue. Yep. And part of that was simply because that is how it was presenting itself in my memory. And the other part of that was especially writing about myself Mm -hmm. and necessarily about the people who were involved in my divorce. I wanted to stay away from ascribing them motivation. Mm -hmm. What I could do is remember what they said and I could remember what I said, but I didn't want to get into the tricky territory of saying, and I think she said this to hurt me, and I think he said this uh, deliberately, you know, trying to to needle me. I didn't want to do that mm-hmm. because I don't know. Mm-hmm. I have ideas. We all have ideas why people do <laughs> things. And I can armchair analyze with the best of them. In fact, I absolutely love doing it in my own time, but not while writing. But with this tricky set of circumstances and with this tricky set of people, I just wanted to present the facts as I, and and, you know, facts should Mm -hmm. be in air quotes, but as I remembered them and leave the motivation off the page. And, And so that's how it started. And there was a point in writing the dialogue where I realized as a writer and also as a reader you can only do so much of that mm-hmm. without it becoming overwhelming mm-hmm. and possibly even boring. And so I wrote that first part and sat on it for a while. And then I had this realization that there was something that I'd been doing since the day my ex moved out, and that was having conversations with him still in my head. I did it all the time, even though At the time of writing it, it was five years later. I was in a happy relationship. I bought a house with a man. I'm helping raise his daughter. So my life is drastically different. But being completely honest, which is what I was trying to be with that book, my ex-husband's voice was still there. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was an unfair voice. It was what I thought he'd say when, and I, and I'd make him, you know, really mean, (laughs) but sometimes I gave him this kind of grace and Mm -hmm. I gave me a kind of grace. And I thought, what would have happened? These two people who, before they ever started dating, who are best friends, Mm -hmm. what would happen if they could have a conversation now and just get a lot of it out of the way? And so I realized that felt like a natural part two. Mm -hmm. And I knew it couldn't be too long. And I knew in some ways that might be the most dangerous territory because I am ascribing him a voice. But, and it might be also where I think a lot of the kind of in the title comes from. Mm -hmm. It's a memoir kind of. But at the same time, I think what I'm doing in part two feels 
the most honest to me because I'm admitting to a fantasy Mm -hmm. that is all mine and it's so personal. And so I put this conversation in and I wanted, it was also where I wanted to, this is going to sound strange, but I wanted him to, I wanted to give him a voice where he could challenge me Mm -hmm. because I know that he would have challenged me. And I know that there were certain things that I might've included that given the opportunity, he would say, I told you point blank, it didn't happen that way. That's not how the affair started. Why would you have included this? I included it because that was what gnawed at me. I had this image of how it happened. So I wanted to include that. But I also wanted to give my hypothetical version of him an opportunity to say, you know, I cry bull. And I wanted it also to be sweet. And I think it's where we attack each other the most. I think it's where I come across the most flawed. But I think at the end of part two, you really get to see the kind of tenderness there was Mm -hmm. and the reason that we were best friends. And I will say my partner now, and he read the book and he read it early before it was published. Now and your ex? He did not. I did not. My ex did not read it. But my partner now, when he read read the book, Mm -hmm. I deliberately tried to stay out of the room when he was reading it because otherwise I'm a terrible person. You know, if you laugh, I say, what'd you laugh at? Yeah, yeah. Right? Like I'm the worst. What did you think about that? I I saw your face. Like your eye moved a millimeter. It means you didn't like that, right? You're a writer. You know this. this, (laughs) I am horrible to, to be in a room with if you're reading my work. But I saw him tear up and then he actually wiped a tear out of his eye and he put it down and he said, I just finished part two. I think I I think I understand it a little bit more. And that was so huge that I was able to make my partner cry by being really honest about the relationship I'd had before him. Yeah. The relationship I learned so much from that I'm able to be in this much better right. relationship now. So that was part two. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I knew that could only go on for so long. And and it's it's right there in the center and it's it's funny because that's the one where when I handed part two into my agent, I think a lot of agents are this way. I love mine. I've been with her for a decade. I think she's brilliant. She's got this very calming voice and she's not often really excited, <laughs> which is probably <laughs> probably good. But what it means is when she is excited, I know I'm on to something. And after part two, she called me and she said, I I cannot wait until this book is published because I have a friend who is going through this. And what you said about the Dobro, she has with uh, with cameras. And I cannot, I, there are 30 women that I'm going to hand it to. And I was so excited because I knew I was on to something there that I had tapped into being so particular into something kind of universal. Totally. Yeah. We've actually, we had so many people who were coming into the store, into my bookstore, asking for memoirs or novels or what books can we read for a friend who's getting a divorce or going through a divorce or whatever. So I've actually started a whole new section. (laughs) That's so smart. uh, Books just for that. Like if you're going through a painful divorce, you know, love and heartbreak and all of that. Uh, Because what you went through, I mean, it's your story, but it has so much universality, as you say. Like there's so many emotions that you can relate to and no relationship is perfect, right? right? No person is perfect. And we get to know all the flaws of 
your ex, but also of you. I mean, oh, you're really sure. open about it. And so you see it's, I don't know, sometimes I'm like, I can't believe any relationships even work out. I know. I, I, <laughs> I feel the same way, but it's, you know, it's really funny. Helen Ellis, when she's well, a friend I love of, Helen she's Ellis. so amazing, oh right? Gosh, yes. So funny, so smart, writes the best books. When she was the first person to offer me a blurb for this and hers was, she wanted to go to high school stu- students and pass it out to girls, like mm. in high school to say, here's what not to do. <laughs> and I was having dinner with Maggie Smith, also her own beautiful divorce Amazing. memoir, right? Yes. And I was having dinner with her last night, and she was talking about what she'd always imagined was her ideal readership for her book. And she was thinking, you know, 41 and up. And I said, Maggie, my undergrads, 18 to 22, my grad students, they aren't married. They love it. They mm-hmm. treat that book like a Bible. I mean, it means so much to them. I think it's tapping in to something that is a very female experience, regardless of whether or not you have kids, yep. whether or not you've ever been married. And I just so admire, admire yeah. books and writers who can do things like yeah, that. Yeah, let's just talk about Maggie's book. I know. I know, I know. I'm going to be doing that at two o'clock. I know. We're perfect. supposed to talk about each other's books. And I was like, Maggie, listen, they're there for you. I'm basically just going to highlight you. I'm no, just going to like shine a light around you. Uh, no, but both of you took a different form to tell a story. It's not just, pro- not just standard prose, which yeah. I find really interesting. And Often when you're going through anything, whether, and it's almost a trauma, right? I mean, it kind of, when you go, when you go through the loss, I shouldn't say almost, it is a trauma, right? When you go through the loss of your most central relationship, you can't always think about it in like prolonged prose. It it can be like, well, what about this? Well, and you just keep replaying all the things. Absolutely. And that's why, so in part three, which I think of as my most traditional section where I'm just telling these short anecdotes, not unlike, you know, Maggie's short anecdotes. Mm -hmm. It took me a year to realize what I'd done accidentally. I mean, I can look back and say I did it deliberately, but I didn't. Part one, there's all of this noise in the data, right? It's everyone's voices. Part two, I'm able to eliminate everything except my ex and me talking. And in part one, and I wrote it in that order, Part one is where I'm finally able to speak without sort of the experimental performance of the other modes, the other structures. And I'm just using the first person pronoun and I'm able to talk about me in a way that it's very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm a fiction writer. I love to make up stories and I imbue so many of my characters with myself. That's very easy. But to say, I did this. I couldn't sleep at night. I watched Netflix for 10 hours at night and you know, I loved took that my part, dog's though. pills I loved, to I try loved to that. sleep. I love that. You only did it once, though, you said. I did only do it once. Yeah. But this is, I also am an oversharer now. Like, I think the more we share, the more we make connections. And who doesn't love to make connections? And there's always some person who, when you admit something, really what you think is you know, the yeah. the embarrassing piece, you know, you see one or 12 yep. fans go yep. up in the audience. Now I'm on trazodone. It's how I sleep, but it's my prescription. <laughs> yeah. It has my name on it. It's, and, it's, and it's something we all laugh about in my family. Yeah. My sister's like, you don't need your dogs yeah. anymore. <laughs> you are the dog. You have become the dog. I actually accidentally took my dog's medicine, <laughs> not on purpose. And I was pregnant at the time. And I was so, I was like totally distracted with my other kids and da da da. And I was like, you know, I just was talking to somebody and I put the pill in my hand and instead of giving it to the dog, I just like took it. And then all of a sudden I was like, 
oh my god I just took my dog's medicine and I remember I, my my husband my now my ex was like call the doctor what did you do blah 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 so I call my OB and she's like well call me if you start barking <laughs> that's the best answer yeah, I love it it was doctors. obviously was completely fine but yeah. um yes so turns out you could take your dog's medicine you just won't get heartworm yeah <laughs> your heartworm's safe yeah it actually it was like gabapentin it was like a pain medicine I'm sure I felt great the rest of the day <laughs> Well, you shared so much in the book about your own history with eating disorders and how it started and the friend that sort of made it sort of click that you could do this, even though you you just like chart for us the whole progression of it, where you found it almost avoidable. It seems there was a question mark because you were like, my life was going in this direction. I hadn't even thought about my body. I was just sort of tall and thin, which only a tall and thin person could actually say. But anyway, um, but you're like, I didn't even think about it until this friend was doing what I was doing, but on purpose and like better in a way. Yeah. And then you were like, well, I only want to eat Skittles too. And I should do this. And you got caught up in it to the, and then it went on and on. Anyway, talk about a little bit how it felt to write about your whole history of eating disorders. Are you okay putting it out there? And even at the end, when you're like, you know, I still do these tricks. I'd still measure yeah. my, you know, your relationship with your body now. And how did the writing make you feel about it? I I loved being honest about it. It was It was such an unnecessary secret for so long. And I think there's this shame that we are taught when we're little, especially young girls, but I do know there are boys who suffer from this as well. But there's this shame that goes along with wanting to control our bodies and the methods that we use it. And so we don't ask for help mm-hmm. and we don't articulate uh, what's going on. And, you know, I, I write in the book that I'd, I'd read a lot I was a pretty precocious young child, so I knew I knew that there was something going on. I knew I shouldn't be doing it. I was ashamed of it rather than scared of it. And so I read about, you know, why might a young, ambitious, you know, somewhat intelligent girl like me do this? And when I caught that line about it's a way to control your situation, I, I glommed onto that, mm-hmm. that this was about control. And I do certainly think it was about control, but it was also at a certain point, it did become an obsession with the body. And so these two things, you know, I couldn't control my parents' divorce and the 10-year custody battle, which was insane. That was out of my control. And I do think I was looking for attention and at the same time, terrified of being caught, you know, mm-hmm, which I mm-hmm. think is the human heart in conflict with itself. Both things can be true. And so it was it was a, re- a relief, really, to sit down and to pinpoint those moments, you know, pinpoint the Skittles and pinpoint that day on the bus where somebody pointed out that I was skinny. And you're right. Only a skinny, tall person can say, I had no idea of what my body looked like. And my sister and I have talked a lot about this. She's beautiful. She does not have the exact same body that I have. And we've talked about how she was struggling the whole time in a much different way. She never made unhealthy decisions like I made. But I kept it 
that secret mm -hmm. was so secret for so long. And I think it impacted so many relationships, you know, just the way you have to get up from a dinner table, just the way that you have to pretend to want to be alone. Mm -hmm. And then depending on whether or not you've gotten your eyes puffy, you have to pretend to be upset at something. So all of it's actually, there's just so much, there's a butterfly effect happening of just wanting to expel food from your body. But then then there's the day that it's no longer control and it's, it's no longer your body. You're just stuck mm -hmm. in this horrible, horrible pattern. And I wanted, I wanted to put it on the paper because I want there to be mothers and fathers who read about this and who are aware of this. And I want there to be girls who read it and think, I'm close to doing something like that. It's not embarrassing. It's something that I need help for. And I also wanted to put it on the paper so I'm accountable. I, I, I tell anybody who will ask about it. And again, it, it goes into oversharing, but that is, that's my way of, it's a bit of self-protection for me. If people know about it, then I'm much less inclined to, to do it. And you know, there have, within the last six months, there have been moments where I've had to say to my partner, oh, we need to go downstairs and watch a movie. And I need you to know that what I would love to be doing is being in a toilet by myself and getting rid of this food. And he'll just say, let's go downstairs, let's watch a movie. And what do you need from me? And that is just having somebody that you can say, there's nothing more that I'd like to do than get rid of this food and for them not to, you know, tell you there's something wrong with you, mm -hmm. but that they'll sit through it with you. Because once I'm on the other side, I'm always so relieved that I didn't do it. But I do think it's, I, I also equate it to alcoholism where, and, I, and I'm not an alcoholic, but I've, I've known alcoholics in my family, related, blood not related to me. And I've, I've read enough about it that it's this thing that you carry with you. And in the same way, they have to make choices every single day. I have to make choices every single day. And if I could give a gift to all women out there, and again, I know that men and boys suffer from it too, but if I could give this gift to women of just never, ever having that awareness of my body looks better this way, or I wish my body looked like my friend Brenda or, you know, Janet so much thinner. That is the gift I would give to everyone. Like just suck it out of it, you know, never to have that. It would be amazing. I know. I know. It's just, it's such a waste of time. It's such a waste it's of time. It's such a waste of time. You know, Emma Thompson talks a lot about it. Kate Winslet talks a lot about it. And I love, I love listening to them talk about what a waste of time it is. And I don't think they mean it judgmentally at all. It's like, there's so many other things we could be doing, like writing our, you know, sixth book or second book <laughs> or first book or illustrating a children's book or, you know, learning to make pasta from scratch. There are so many other things <laughs> that we could be doing. Reading a zippy book. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Yes. yes. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Oh, well, I have so much respect for you for sharing all of it Thank and you. sharing some of the the low points of it and the secrets and the tactics even what you did and just to like it's almost confessional right like I'm putting this out there I'm going to share all this and now I can move on from it because I think sometimes until we do that it's still like in there like right it really is (laughs) this is not this is not a plug for an earlier novel of mine but I went into extreme debt credit card debt when I was in grad school and I never let anybody in my family know how extreme it was and I got myself into a debt reprogram, a debt repayment program, and and I finally got out of it when I was thirty five or thirty six. And I think at some point I confessed to being in this debt repayment program. People knew about that, but no one had any idea about the money. And in my second novel, I'd finished it, I'd sold it. My editor, in that way that editors will do. When she bought it, she said, it's perfect. I love it. And then once you sign, it's, so there's just one thing missing, right? (laughs) And so she said, there's one thing missing. And I said, great, what is it? I'll I'll do it. And she said, I don't know, but I can tell you're holding back something. Mm -hmm. This is a good book, but it's missing the magic. And, you know, I I took Mm -hmm. my dog on a lot of long walks and it was about these three siblings that were not unlike me and my brother and my sister, both of whom are hyper achievers as well and very successful as well. I was reading waiting tables, trying to write a book, right? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. also going into massive debt. And there was this one day where I was walking my dog and by then I was in the the repayment program and, you know, a money sign went off in the top of my head and I I didn't have to rewrite the book. It was just going through and I gave the narrator all of my numbers. I gave it everything I was paying, you know, it was like $890 a month to the Mm -hmm. debt repayment. And I broke it down. There's a chapter, in fact, where I break down the exact numbers that I was paying every single month. And that was my coming out to my family. And they got the book and they said, wow, this is so specific. And I said, surprise, guys. (laughs) I've been getting out of $40,000 debt for the last 10 years. (laughs) Like, celebration. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And, and I wanted, I, and, and it's also another personal accountability thing. Yes. Guess who's not in debt now? You. <laughs> Me. Yay. Right? Congratulations. If there's a credit card bill that comes, it gets paid off. And I know I'm, that I, I say it from a point of privilege that I'm able to do that, but I also make sure 
that I'm never spending, I will never do that again. Mm -hmm. And that book is there as a reminder to me all the time, I will not do it again because I could not sleep. It was every night going through the numbers of what I owed. But this is how we learn, right? Yes. But at the same time, if I can help somebody else make, you know, start to pull out their credit card and then say, wait a minute, didn't I read a book? about a young artist. Wait, what was what was that book called? It was called? called Reunion. I have to go um, read that now. <laughs> but it was and you know it's an artist. She keeps pulling out her credit cards. She yeah. keeps she wants to she wants to be liked. She wants friends and so she'll she'll get it because yeah. it's just this silver silver card oh that can slide across the table. By the way, for anyone listening, if you happen to hear some background noise, as I mentioned before, we're at the Miami Book Fair right now, and there seems to be some sort of outside event occurring. So it's a party. You'll, here, you'll, you'll, feel, you'll feel like you're just a part of the whole scene, right? <laughs> it's an advertisement scene. for yeah. this book fest. It is lively. Another big theme of We Are Too Many is the betrayal of your and getting together with your really good friend, Trish, mm-hmm. who, and then also how you chart your relationship with her, how you chart your relationship with him and how you handled it when you found out that they had gotten together, which is so crushing. It was crushing. So crushing. It was so crushing. And it was also the thing I was always scared of. It was always in the back of my head. And, and I think that more than anything, I was so disappointed in myself that Sometimes it felt like I just kept pushing off the inevitable. No, it wasn't inevitable. <laughs> like, just because you worry about it, just because you had a glimmer doesn't mean this should have happened. It shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have happened. But it was the way I found out it was very sudden. It was the launch of my third book. And, you know, I got the news and I was in New York. So I wasn't at home. I was in New York. She was in New York. And my now ex was in upstate New York at a writer's colony. So we're all sort of in proximity together. And the series of phone calls that happened so fast where I called her, I asked her, she lied. I hung up the phone. She called me right back. She admitted it. She said, do you want me to have your husband call you? I'll never forget that. Do you want me to have your husband call me? And I was like, Never, never, ever, ever use that word with me again. It felt like Mm -hmm, such a mm -hmm, trespass. mm -hmm. And then when she started blaming him on the phone, he did this to put a wedge between us. Mm -hmm. It's his fault, um, using profanity to Mm -hmm. refer to him. And I just said, thank you for your honesty. And uh, I got off the phone and I didn't call him because I knew that he was probably not awake. And I got a phone call from him at about noon. And it was just, did you have sex with her? Was it more than once? Do you think you're in love? Thank you for your honesty. And I kept thanking both of them for their honesty because it blew me away that they weren't lying because I also, at about the same time, I knew some other people who were going through something similar. There was an affair and everyone was lying about it and everyone knew, but Mm -hmm. nobody would be honest. And there's this gaslighting that's crazy. So I was really grateful and it made it so simple. If he had chosen anyone else than the woman who introduced us, then the woman who I talked to my about my eating disorders with, she was she was the one before my partner who knew about my secrets. And so for this woman who had my secrets to make that choice and to lose them both at the same time was 
I, it was, it wasn't having the rug pulled out from under me. It was having the floorboards and uh, the scaffolding pulled out from under me. I was a mess. I was just. How could you not have been a mess? It was, and, and, you know, the very first time I got in touch with a therapist after that, you know, she said, well, what do you want? And I said, I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's been so long that I have been pleasing so many people. What I want is to know what I want. That is what I want. I don't know what a good relationship looks like. I don't know what a good friendship looks like. I know that I'm attracted to very witty, I think, mean women. Mm -hmm. So we need to probably look at that. Yep. Um, and I, I know that I keep a lot of secrets. And so we should probably look at that because that must have impacted mm -hmm. how I was in a relationship with my husband. But a lot of therapy wasn't just dealing with the betrayal. It was also for me to figure out what I even think a life sh for me should look like. And that took some time. Oh. That took some time. I have to say, when you shared all of Trisha's habits and how basically every time she suggested a guy to you, she would like go hook up with him or do something or whatever. Like, I think there's some pathology or so something is going on. That's not the right word. Something, she has some... Thing that has nothing to do with you. Yes. Like yeah. she has some issue. It's self-sabotage because she's going to just keep losing friends. I think so. And and with, with, with me, there was a kind of competition, which I think at first, before the men got involved, I think I was flattered by the competition because she was so beautiful and... But you're um, so beautiful. Oh, thank you. I, I mean really, it. I, I really, really You that. are. I mean, it's um, subjective. It's not even like <laughs> well, subjective. Well, I thought she was beautiful and she seemed to navigate. We were both in the same writing program. Her stories had that spark, you know, and I felt like my stories had that spark. So we had this kind of, I thought, very healthy writing competition. Mm -hmm. And when she chose me as the person to take under her wing, you know, she's younger than me, but she was older than me in the program, that she chose me having never been a cool girl up until that point. My brother was popular. My sister was popular. I was a wallflower who blushed and cried if you talked to me at a party. So for her to choose me, you know, I learned a lot about navigating bar culture mm -hmm. from her. And it, 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 it's nice for me to be able, especially on book tour, and I travel a lot alone, to be able to go into a bar and eat a dinner alone. I can do that because of her. Um, and I'm completely confident enough to, you know, if somebody wants to hit on me, I just reject them in a nice way. Or if I want to talk, I can. Mm -hmm. Like I've learned a kind of persona. I think a lot of people on book tour learns, learn a kind of persona. So there's, there's a lot that I did learn from her. And at the same time, there was that competition, the sort of sexual competition. And then, but every time I'd feel it, like I said in the book, every time I'd feel it and I'd get this, a clarity was almost there of this is not right. That was a mean thing that she just said. It was designed to make me feel vulnerable. It was designed to make me want to go home and vomit. Every time I'd get close to being able to say that, there would be something with my stepfather who adopted me in the hospital that would just be a turn for the worst. And she lost somebody very close to her as well. And we just had this in common. And she was, of all of my friends in grad school, she was the one who knew about a parent-like figure dying. And she was so good at it. It was where she really shined. She was just never judgmental. She didn't a lot of my other friends would really want to make a big deal about crying. Are you okay? What do we need to do? Do we all need to leave? Mm -hmm. And she'd just say, 
I got your tab. If you want to go, if you want to stay, we can. It's up to you. Alone, what mm-hmm. What do you want? Mm-hmm. And so she didn't treat me like a pariah. There mm-hmm. was just this right amount of empathy. And that's how it always brought me back. It always brought me back. And then she was the first person to ever, you know, this is, I didn't have boyfriends early. She was the first person to ever tell me I was sexy. And even when she told me that, I knew there was a kind of, why are you telling me this? Mm-hmm. But you think I'm sexy. You're like the sexiest woman I know. And it's so flattering, right? I was actually just binge watching Sex and the City, the first se- the first season mm-hmm. last night. It's always what I it do. It's like the best. Tour. It is absolutely the best show. <laughs> and, and I watched the one where uh, Charlotte, for the first time, is dating this man who keeps calling her sexy. And mm-hmm. it turns out he's looking for a three-way. <laughs> and, and her friends keep saying... Charlotte, it's not that you're not sexy, but the reason he keeps telling you se- that you're sexy is he wants you to feel sexy <laughs> so that he can have he can have this thing, right? <laughs> and as I was watching it, I was like, I know she wasn't angling for a three-way, but there is something about that mm-hmm. word and yep. the way that it can catch you. It can yep. catch you offhand. It's like a little excitement of, yep. ooh, I've never, I've never even considered that before. Mm-hmm. What what might that what that might mean for the rest <laughs> of my future? Right? Oh my gosh. There's so much more to discuss, but what, what are you working on now? Like, what can we expect? What's your next book? Will you write memoir essays, all that again? So for the first time in so long, I wrote a short story. I have a short story um, that my agent is shopping right now and I love it. It's like, I've remembered that kind of still yeah art you know I, I teach it to my students all the time and I read them all the time but I have I've lost that ability until recently to distill mm-hmm. and, and kind of that magic sauce that's necessary but I wrote a I wrote a piece I'm really excited about that but in the meantime I've just finished a novel and it's um it is it is a novel but it is about a 43 year old woman who her it's me. It's me. <laughs> it's basically me. Um, and it's it's uh, it's her navigating life as a stepmother and mm. life in not in the suburbs, but domesticity. And it takes place in a Midwestern town and her family, more and more of her family keeps moving to town, her sister, her biological father, her mother. So there's this like real encroaching of this privacy that she's always had. It's about secrets. It's about writing. I love it. It sounds amazing. I'm very, I want to read it. I'm very excited <laughs> about it. Um, it's it's experimental in the same, not in the same way as we are too many, but you know, I'm I'm lucky in that I'm, I'm I've got tenure, which is you know set for life in wow. many ways. Like uh, I can I could always mess it up if I, I think if I think if I like did cocaine on a desk with students watching, I could definitely (laughs) lose my academic freedom and be fired. But it does mean that I'm in a place where I can kind of write the books I want to write and they may not get published. I hope this one does, but it's, I think I'm writing at the height of my talent right now. And it's definitely about like what it is to be a woman and have that like interior life that I think oh so much of us have. Send it to Zippy Book. Can you? Can, you, can I? Can I? Can I get in on that? Can I take a peek? It's. Uh, I was describing it to someone, and I said, you know, if um, George Saunders and Robert Coover had a baby, and Margaret Atwood was there to take photos, like that's what I'm doing. It's, but it's very much about the female experience. But I want it to also be. I want it to be intellectual. I want it to, because I think women are so smart and we don't often, 
we're always congratulated for how emotive we are and that we're so empathetic. And But what what that really means is that ability to be empathetic is because we're so hyper-intelligent <laughs> that we're able to make these connections and understand why people may be behaving. There's mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. at that source. And so I'm really interested in giving that credit to women on the page. You know, for somebody who started her career, I did writing about men. My debut is men focusing on a woman. I have now gotten to the point, and it's it's something that's happened in my 40s. I just want to read about women. I just want to read about women's minds. I want to read about them doing their daily lives and the way that, you know, I'll quote my partner here, and this is, I use this in my book, but I totally believe, especially now that I've got a stepdaughter in my life, the days crawl and the years fly. Yes. And so it's just, but it has to be about what's going on in those days that are making our lives. And so I really want to look at the tiny to explode it into the big and the universal. Amazing. Oh my gosh. Well, that's, what's the title for that? Working title? <laughs> the working title, I have two different working titles. One of them is If You Love It, Let It Kill You, which mm. is my family's motto. <laughs> but the other one is Goat Show, which is uh, the way that my family talks about like a an expletive show. Like if something is really bad or mm-hmm. it's just like gone crazy, it's a goat yeah. show. Okay. Like it's show a goat show. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I love a spondy for a title. You know, Ann Patchett will tell you that. Put, put those two words that you can yep. see, Tom Lake, do yep. tell. Yep. Goat show, yep. bounce house. There you go. I love a spondy. <laughs> Hannah, thank you so much for coming on Mom's No Time to Read Books, especially with this crowd and all the <laughs> excitement of the Miami Book Fair. Good luck on your panel thank and you thank you for so the time. Much. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.